I was having a quick lunch uh, because we were due to open that night with uh, West Side Story over the road in the Kofana restaurant and uh, I had a phone call from Albert here and his exact words were to me, I think you better come back, Mr. Smith, the theatre's collapsed. <laughs> we, heard, we heard the rumble and when we got uh, out of the lift, which we were lucky to a certain extent that the power wasn't cut off, otherwise we would have been stuck in the lift. We didn't know what had happened at the time until we got out and out of the lift and the bar was full of dust. That we uh, Though the lights was on, we had to grope our way through. The theatre was full of dust. We didn't know what happened. The afternoon of Monday, November 4, 1974, it was just before the opening of the musical West Side Story at the Olympia Theatre in Dublin. The singers and dancers and musicians had taken a lunch break. In fact, what had happened and what caused so much damage and uh, destruction was that uh, a section of the proscenium, or above the proscenium arch, had collapsed. Uh, It was linked with the centre part of the ceiling, not the roof. There's been a lot of misunderstanding about this. And uh, the proscenium arch, the area above it, the centre part of the ceiling came down and brought down with it these huge ventilation shafts which crashed into the uh, front stalls and the, the girder that came down from the proscenium, of course, crashed into the front of the boxes. Even before that spectacular collapse, the Olympia Theatre had a checkered history. Before it was the Olympia, it was the Empire Palace. Before that, it was Dan Lowry's Palace of Varieties. And before that again, it was Dan Lowry's Star of Aaron Music Hall. The site in Crampton Court off Dame Street had been a military barracks until 1720, and it had been a singing tavern where Peg Woffington sang as a child early in the 18th century. Dan Lowry, who opened the first theatre in Crampton Court, was born in Ross Cray in 1823. His parents took the emigrant boat to England, and young Dan grew up in Leeds. By his thirties he was in Liverpool and had opened a tavern. Not only did he serve food and drink to his customers, he also told stories and sang comic songs. And this was the song he made his own. Then should you want to carve, sirs, I hope you'll not forget Poor Pat of Mullingar, sirs, and his darling little pet She's as gentle as the dove, sirs, her speed you can't deny There's no blind side about her, though she only has one eye She can trot along, jog along Drank a jumping car, no days too long when sent along by Pat of Mullingar. It wasn't long before Dan Lowry had two singing taverns in Liverpool, but something drew him back to Ireland. He opened a music hall in Belfast, the Alhambra, and by 1878 was ready to open another music hall, this time in Dublin, on the site of the old barracks and tavern in Crampton Court. On Monday, December 22, 1879, Dan Lowry's Star of Erin Music Hall opened its doors. Matthew Mercer, one of the historians of the Olympia and the theatres that preceded it, describes that first music hall. The building was long and uh, narrow. It was um, two balconies. The sides of the balconies extended right down to the uh, stage. And there were about uh, four or five chairs down on the side. Most of the seating was long, or long benches, upholstered. 
nothing fancy. And the uh, audience was generally composed of uh, men. It wasn't the right thing for ladies to be seen in the music halls. It was all uh, gaslight. The only electric light they had was one light outside. On the first night, an orchestra recruited by Dan played Irish melodies and light opera, and the bars, according to an account of the time, were blessed with barmaidens. The Freeman's Journal reported next morning, Mr Lowry has spared no expense to make his new venture comfortable and popular, and we believe that he has framed rules for the conduct of the theatre, which leaves nothing to be desired. We believe Mr Lowry will not offend our moralities in his music hall. Dan Lowry's was not a legitimate theatre according to the laws of the time. The Gaiety in South King Street was Dublin's legitimate theatre. Dan's was a people's theatre. Dan had comics, acrobats, banjo players, character actors, singers and troops of dancing girls who usually emptied the bars, despite the attractions of the barmaids. I and my friend, whose picture you behold, dropped into Dan's on Saturday night last and found it packed from floor to ceiling. Being rather late, we had no chance of getting seats, so remained in the promenade. We could hear what was being sung, and even got a peep at the stage now and then, but we also had the pleasure of seeing Dan himself in all his glory, not to speak of getting a glance at the courteous and efficient manager, Mr Lloyd. And then those charming Hebes behind the bar. Ladies, I offer you my sincere respects, and only wish that all ladies attending in bars were as civil and attentive. There were also actors who blacked their faces, like Brown, Newland and the Clerk. They performed a sketch called Black Justice as early as 1870 in Dan Lowry's, and this very rare recording was made at the beginning of the century. Oh, I think, Your Honour, what are you talking about? How do I know? Boozer, was there any money found on the prisoner? Uh, yes, Your Honour. How much? I think Well, where is it? I think it. Ah, you hear that now, prisoner? Look me straight in the eyeball. Are you guilty or not guilty? Not guilty, my lord. Then get out of here. Well, you are, what are you doing? Will you tell me why you discharged that prisoner? Why, didn't you hear the man say he was not guilty? Why, of course the man would say that. Well, you want me to call him a liar and have him come up here and smack me? By 1881, Dan Lowry's health was failing, so he brought his son, Dan Jr., from Liverpool to run the star of Aaron. So in 1881, Dan Lowry II came to Dublin and uh, transformed the business. And what, what were his methods of transforming the theatre? Well, his advertising campaigns were much uh, better. And he also had a note in the programme that anything objectionable was to be reporters to him. You see, there wouldn't be any repetition. And he kept undesirable characters out. The star of Aaron became Dan Lowry's Music Hall in August 1881. One of the performers at the new Music Hall can be heard in an old recording with a song that audiences heard in 1882. G. H. Chirguin. Chirguin was a gaunt man in a black costume with his face blacked out except for a patch around his right eye. He played a fiddle made from an old cigar box and sometimes he sang in a falsetto voice.
In those years, George Leybourne, Champagne Charlie, played the Olympia for a cool £100 a week. There was Vesta Tilly, the great Mary Lloyd, even Jem Mace, one-time bare-knuckle champion fighter of the world, and in 1886, Johnny Patterson, the rambler from Clare, singing his own songs. The first of my courtship that ever was known I straight took my way to the county Tyrone Where among the pretty fair maids they used me well there And they called me the stranger and the rambler from Clare was then I enlisted in the town of Fermoy But with so many masters I would not comply I deserted next morning, the truth I declare And for Limerick town started the rambler from Clare There were events that weren't advertised. For the benefit of a photographer from Grafton Street, a Viennese lion tamer put her head in a lion's mouth and nearly lost it and a young man threw himself from the gallery into the orchestra and was charged at College Street Police Station with attempted suicide. He had fallen on the head of the cornet player, and he didn't return to the orchestra for six weeks. By 1889, the theatre had become Dan Lowry's Palace of Varieties, and a common sight on the stage in those days were groups of singing sisters, a fashion of the time. There were the sisters Young Men's, the sisters Richmond, the sisters Lemar, the sisters Levy, the sisters Bilton, and some of them married well. One of them became the Countess of Clancarthy at Garbley Park in County Galway. But the changing fashions didn't bother Dan Lowry any more. By 1890 he was dead, and he was not to be involved in the War of the Halls, as it was called. That was Dan Jr.'s problem. The second Dan Lowry doubled the capacity of the theatre until in 1892 it held over 1,600 people. Before the century ended, Dan Leno had arrived. His parents were Irish and his real name was George Wilde. Dan Leno was the successor to Grimaldi and Ethel Barrymore was to say of him, he not only made you laugh, he also broke your heart. Not a place in all the land like the good old Tower of London, where everything is awfully grand in the glorious Tower of London. For the walls are high and the dungeons deep, refreshments there are very, very cheap. But the beer it is not warranted to keep in the good old Tower of London. Sing hey, sing ho. For the beer in the Tower of London. There's no place on the face of the earth like the Tower of London. If you've never been there, go again. It's a glorious place. Everything old. Now, in the first place, when you visit the Tower of London, it's free. But you have to pay a shilling to go in. And the first ancient item you see is the man that takes the money at the door. Then you pass through the refreshment room, which is the oldest refreshment room in the tower, and the only one. And there's some very ancient items in the refreshment room, such as um, the buns and ginger beer and, and the barmaids and uh, whatnot. 
Good day, ladies. Do you wish to see the tower? Splendid day to see the tower. Nice and gloomy. Oh, yes. I can show you around the tower. Of course, I'm not allowed to do so, but I can do so. Now, uh, in the first place, this is the refreshment room. Uh, of course, if you want anything in the refreshment room, of course, now is the time. You don't care for anything. No, thank you. Only as we go along, there's no oranges or ginger beer to be had, and of course, you, if you feel faint, you have to come back to the refreshment room. You know, you don't care. No, don't want anything. No, I do. Still, we'll proceed. Standing with our backs to the refreshment room, we get a lovely view of the tower. Follow me, ladies. Standing with your back to the tower, you get a lovely view of uh, the refreshment room. Now, you see that man over there? That's the sentry. He stands there night and day with his gun fixed, bayonet fixed, and his eye always on one spot, and that is uh, the refreshment room. For it's a splendid time to see the happy house. Everything is free, and there's nothing for to pay, but if you haven't got a bob or two, you'd better stay away from the good old tower of London. Oh. In 1881, Charles Coburn had first appeared at Dan Lowry's. He returned in 1895 when the orchestra played over and over again and the audience went home whistling the song Coburn had made famous. I've just got here to Paris from the sunny southern shore. I to Monte Carlo went just to raise me with the rent. Same fortune smiled upon me as she never smiled before. And I've now just lots of money, I'm a gent. Yes, I've now just lots of rhino, I'm a gent. As I walk along the quad, put over that independent air. And hear the girl declare, he must be a millionaire. And hear them sigh and wish and I will see them wink the other eye. But the man who wrote the bank at Monte Carlo. I walk along the front foot of the independent air. Could you hear the girls declare? You'll be a millionaire. Could you hear them sigh and wish that I would see them wink the other eye as the man who broke the bank at Monte Carlo? That's all right. Now, we'll let's jolly good. We'll have another one. As I walk along the front foot of the independent air, we'll hear the girls declare. You'll be a millionaire. In February 1897, Dan Lowry's closed again, and it was Charles Coburn who welcomed the audience back in November when the theatre reopened as part of the Moss Circuit as the Empire Palace. And you can still see the name in stained glass in the portico above the Dame Street entrance to the theatre. Young Dan had planned the new building, but his affairs were in a financial mess, and the chairman of the new board of directors with Adam Finlater, very much a merchant prince and patron of the arts. Still, the great music hall artists continued to play the boards of the now famous theatre. On St. Patrick's Day, everything was bright and gay down at Maloney. Ah, it was a merry throng There was singing there Sure and love to fill the air Until a Yankee Got up to sing a song He sang about his home In Tennessee so dear But when he sang an Irish song Maloney cried Look here Sing a 
song about the dear old home Sing a song of all Lang Syne Sing a song about the girl you love All of eyes that brightly shine Sing a song about the Mississippi Or the darky shuffling along But don't forget it takes an Irish heart to sing an Irish song. Florrie Ford, whose real name was Flanagan. She was still topping the bill early in the new century. There was Harry Lauder and G.H. Eliot. There was Ella Shields. And there was Mary Kendall, who had sung at Dan Lowry's, and she sang at the Empire, and she would live to sing at the Olympia. And Vesta Victoria, who first appeared in Dublin in 1882 as Baby Victoria, and this was one of her best-known songs. During the Boer War, there were songs for the Irish regiments, and the Gaelic League went along to heckle. During the First World War, there were recruiting songs, and there were also short plays, for the distinction between music hall and the legitimate theatre was becoming less rigid. The first full-length play performed at the Empire was in 1917. It was titled O Lawsy Me, and written by Thomas King Moylan, who wrote several plays for the Abbey. Here are the RTE players reconstructing a scene from that play, which, as you can judge by the references to Zeppelins and submarines, was very topical at the time. What the devil did you throw those things out of the window for? Oh, Moshe, sir, it was the easiest way of getting them downstairs. Well, I wish you would not throw them out on top of me. Oh, did they fall on you? Was that funny? I suppose now, Doctor, you thought it was one of them zeppelins was after dropping a bomb on you. I wonder, Doctor, how you'd feel if a real bomb was after dropping on you. I should say you wouldn't have much time to feel how you felt. I only hope you will soon have a personal opportunity of knowing what it is like to have a real bomb dropped on you. I haven't had a moment's peace since you put your foot in my house this morning. The moment I sit down, you whip the chair from under me. And the moment I come into the garden, you drop the furniture on me out of the windows. Ah, you demon! Well, he seems to be in a bad temper over something, the old fizzy sicker. Oh, good morning, ma'am. Isn't it the lovely morning after the terrible night last night? Really? I do not know what sort of the night was. 
I was not out. Like the sunflowers, ma'am. You only come out in the morning. I hear tell, ma'am, as how there was one of them snub marines seen in the dogger last night. And they tell me it's after escaping up the tree rock mountain with all the police after it. Oh. Oh, lousy me. The royal family's not receiving today. I thought they might be when I seen the flags flying. Hey, that old black thing on the line wouldn't make a bad dress for me again the summer. I'd like to have something decent for going to Marion of a Sunday. Oh, Marion's a heavenly spot. All the old ones waiting with their fine beefy understandings and they showing them off as if they was barely girls. I wonder would that old skin give it to me if I asked her. Be that, and I'm going to have it, whether or no. Now, how did you say that? Ah, yeah. I beg your pardon, my good woman. And I beg yours, ma'am, and I know such things. I want no impertinence, please. But you cannot shake those mats here. Oh, I can't, can't I? Look at this, ma'am. I will not allow you to do it. I never allow my mats to be shaken in the back. Nor anywhere else, ma'am, I wouldn't doubt. But the doctor's very clean, man, and hates dirt. Stop that at once, or I shall call the doctor. You are ruining my laundry. Did you see a black crepe de chine nightdress that was on this line a moment ago? It gives me enough to do, ma'am, to mind me own business without looking after your bit of washing. There was a black nightgown on this line not half an hour ago. And it is not there now. Oh, uh, maybe it blown away, ma'am. Oh, there was a terrible harsh wind a few minutes ago. I must ask my husband to report this to the police when he comes home. I'd take them in, ma'am, if I was you. Your mind to be easier. I am taking them in. Kindly mind your own business. Just what I was doing, ma'am, until you asked me to mind yours. <laughs> What the devil are you filling the place with your filthy dust for? Take those mats into the lane or anywhere besides here. I'm doing now, sir. The lady next door delayed ah. me. <coughs> You've left the place <coughs> chock full of microbes and bacilli. Uh, I can almost see them floating in the air. Oh, lordy me. <coughs> Me own poor man used to be like that sometimes. Like what? Seeing things like floating in the air. I and biting they used to be sometimes. I wonder what the late lamented Mr. Burns saw floating in the air when he married you. It must have been something frightful. In March 1919, Harry O'Donovan, who had first appeared in 1914 as Harry Kildare, presented his own review at the Empire, Top of the Morning. One of the artists in that show was Frank Howard. I think uh, the part I played on that show would, would uh, be the comedy policeman. Something, something to do with comedy, you know. That's the part I think. I hardly played a poacher. It was a funny thing, this, that show, Top of the Morning, I suppose that you would have called that one of the first jazz bands. We did, I think this brother never finished the show, according to what Harry told me. And Harry was at death's door to know, how would I finish this review? And the way we finished it was something up, something down to, we came to a jazz, a jazz band. 
And I, I say we were first set, and we we play all had instruments. I I know I remember I had a tenor horn, but it was gazooks we had. <laughs> <laughs> and so, such a band. The Empire was now rivaled by the Tivoli on Burr Quay, which was to last until 1928. Harry Lauder, who had been paid £20 at the Empire, was paid £40 by the Tivoli. A 3,000-seat theatre in Henry Street, the Coliseum, was opened in April 1915, but its life was very short. It was burned out during the shelling of the GPO in 1916. The Empire began to aim its sights slightly higher. In 1919, Walter McNally's Grand Opera Company was staging productions at the Empire. Walter McNally had first appeared at the Empire in Variety in 1917, singing popular Irish songs. In 1921, the Empire staged a four-act comedy by John McDonough, the brother of 1916 leader Thomas McDonough, The Irish Jew, in which a young Jimmy O'Dee was first discovered for his comic potential. By 1924, the Olympia was staging all Irish reviews, like Next Stop Dublin, which had Harry O'Donovan, Jimmy O'Dee, Faye Sargent and a young Rhea Mooney. Jimmy and Harry were to join forces, and Mrs Mulligan of the Coombe was born. Turn in your tram, turn in your tram. Wait a minute, conductor. Come on, we'll be off in the tick. Give me your hand. I can't. If I let go the parcel of tripe, I'm ruined. Come down and give us the hoosh up. Well, pon me soul, it's a special car we'd want for you. Come on, up you go. I wish you'd run a special tram to York Street and not be forcing me to fraternise with the Elysee of Terenure. Now, that'll do. Hey, mind the fish. It's coming through the paper already. There, there's a corner seat for you. Not that I am as good as anyone from Terenure or Rat Mine. That's all right. There's none of your Russian boots and no breakfast about me. Excuse me, sir. Is the tripe leaking on your spat? Conductor, couldn't this woman leave her parcels outside? There's an abominable odour. Are you addressing your remarks to me, Colonel Bogey? The gentleman objects to the smell of that tripe. Much about him. Let him take a walk down Moore Street and get his nose educated. Do him all the good in the world. The rules of the company forbid you to carry objectionable articles in the car. Are you insinuating that I'm going to have me dinner of an objectionable article? There's 15 different kinds of vitamins in tripe. Put that in your bag and jingle it. Come on, come on, give me that parcel. I'll give you a smack in the goo. I'm paying me fair, even if I'm not going to tell you. Go on, ding, ding your bell and let's be off. Me husband is waiting for his dinner. Oh, excuse me, ladies and gents, his lunch. I'm forgetting me etiquette. Conductor, I insist on having this parcel removed. I'm a shareholder in this company. Judging by your sunset dial, I thought you were a shareholder in John Jemison. Insolent creature. 
There's a lot of water gone down the liffy since you had that schoolgirl complexion. Hey, you'll get into trouble in a minute. Mm, I can see I'm not popular in this tram. That's sticking out a mile. Yes, I'm including you over there, ma'am, with the beaver collar that was shot in Wicklow. Go on, keep on raising your plucked eyebrows. Now then. Let me alone, you. I'm just getting into good form. That's for the whole lot of you. Permanent waves and all. Pardon me, sir. Will you take the crook of your walk and stick out of me fish? Woman, this is insufferable. Ah, go and have your face lifted. And have it lifted under your hat and stop frightening the children. Conductor, you'd better call the police. Call out the reserves while you're at it. And the new corporation. They're used to talking tripe anyway. Come on, get out of this, you and your tripe. I'm fed up. Quite right, Conductor. Deal with her firmly. Well, be dad, me old gent. You'll have one feed of tripe in your life, wherever you were brought up. Take that. Oh, oh! How dare you hit this gentleman in the face with that tripe? Come out! I'm destroyed. Oh, disgusting. Call for the onions tomorrow. I'm leaving you. I wouldn't travel in such company. Here, come back to you and pick up this tripe off the floor. There's plenty more where that came from. Goodbye, you slot of gazebos. Bring the tripe out to Terenure and avoid it amongst you. Toodaloo, toodaloo. Have you heard the Mickey Hickey and the Harp and Shamrock Band? The darlings of the ladies and the terrors of the land. On a Sunday night upon parade, it is the gorgeous show. To see the drummers drum the drums and hear the blowers blow. The corner did is frightful and the fight more frightful still. And the man that baits the bass drum, faith he baits it with the will. For the thing to make you stagger when the band strikes up a tune is little Mickey Hickey and his owl bassoon. So in and out and round about and up and down we go. We never met his equal yet, and owl bassoon to blow. Ah, the stars are green, the yellow, and there's wrinkles on the moon. When little Mickey Hickey plays his owl bassoon. Dick Smith's Cayley Band. They were a favourite in those reviews at the Empire in the 20s. And they became the first Cayley Band to broadcast when Radio 2RN began in 1926. In February 1923, the Empire Palace became the Olympia Theatre. Perhaps some people had disliked the word Empire in the new Irish Free State. At any rate, the declared policy of the new Olympia was to stage plays, opera, ballet, films, oratorio, pantomime, and the mainstay was to be review and variety. The new owners were Isaac Bradshaw and Robert Morrison, both of whom had been in the cinema business. This was Empire when I played for it. Oh, yes. <coughs> the Olympia was um, later on. Morrison was a great man. I was there, I was thinking today, it, I must have been there at the back end of the Second or the First World War, it must have been, the back end. Because I remember Mr Morrison saying one day, stuck for, he was a very rough man, but I, to talk to him, I believe he never spoke very much to me, but at the back of it all, he had a heart of gold, you know. Fred used to say, a heart of gold. The times were changing and new artists began appearing at the Olympia in the years before the Second World War. In the 1930s, Flanagan and Allen sang a song they had made their own in 1926. (laughs) 
Yes, Ches, we used to sit on a seat with the Thames Embankment behind us. You had a newspaper and read the headlines. That's quite right, Bob. I've still got that paper. Do you remember the date? It's 1926. Ches, read those headlines again. Ah, here's one. Gertrude Ederly, 18-year-old American, first woman to swim the channel. Listen to this. Cricket. Ashes for England after 14 years. <laughs> Irish woman, Violet Gibson, shoots Mussolini. In the nose. Oh, listen. Churchill's unpopular budget. 5% tax on all legal bets. Charlie Chaplin, not to retire. Second time in history, Atlantic flown by three Spaniards. Here's one. Death of Barbara Lamar, film actress with five husbands. BBC asked for nine shillings instead of seven and six for wireless license. Hopes of return to Penny Post. Listen to this, Jess. Bookmakers in a bad way. Ah, that'll be the day, bud. Well, things are a little different now, aren't they? They certainly are. And as they keep on improving, like they're doing now, you know where we'll be back again. Sleeping when it's raining And sleeping when it's fine Trains rattling by Pavement is up When the Second World War came, the cross-channel artists were no longer to be seen and the Olympia found itself relying almost entirely on Irish talent. The Dublin Operatic Society, which had been founded in 1928, moved to the Olympia in 1945. One of the first artists to become a favourite of Dublin audiences was Hedl Nash. He first sang Faust at the Olympia in 1946. Oh 
one actress saw the potential of the Olympia as a legitimate theatre in the 1940s, Sheila Richards. She was to stage a new play by Paul Vincent Carroll, The Strings Are False, and break the theatre box office records. At all events, at this time when I wanted to do this play, there was no theatre to be got. And I asked several friends, theatrical people, press people, and they said, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. I mean, you just can't bring straight play into the Olympia. Because the Krauss Channel stuff that it uh, had done in the past, and for as long as it could during the war, uh, was of a rather low calibre. And it was mostly used as a drinking house, you see. As Mr Morrison said to me at a later date, after the strings had been on, in fact, no, in the first week of the strings, I had gone to him and I said, um, oh, please, please, could we have the bar doors closed before the curtain goes up? And he said to me, Miss Richards, you may make your money with your play, but I make my money in the bars. Did he, did he need much persuasion to rent the theatre to you? Terrible. Terrible. So I had opposition in all directions. All my friends said I was mad, crazy. Did I have that money to lose? I said, I've no money at all. But I know this play will be a success. I know because it, at that time we were starved for information about the war because censorship was very, very heavy. And everyone wanted to know what was going on. And this play was about the Glasgow Blitz, which had uh, taken place, what, six or seven months beforehand. And, of course, Glasgow uh, was pretty near to us, and everyone along the eastern seaboard heard these planes going up every night, the German bombers. And, uh, of course, one was interested. And... This is what this play was about, and the hero of the play was a Catholic priest. And I just knew, knew if I could find a theatre to put it into, it was going to be a success. Occasionally in one's life one knows these things. Three nights after the opening night, I was in the theatre. I realised I would have to go down every night to try and quieten people as they came out of the bars. And, you know, I'd go running up the aisle there saying, shh, 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 And on the third night, I heard from the other side of the auditorium, I heard somebody saying, shh, 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 shh. It was the most successful moment in my life, I think. And I went over to see who it was. It was Bob Morrison, the man who was now making more in the theatre than he was making in the bars. Alongside the productions by Sheila Richards of plays by Carol O'Casey and Frank Carney, the variety shows continued. And among the artists who appeared in those shows were Jack Cruz and Cecil Sheridan. And they knew the special quality and the special audience that the Olympia had. Audiences are made up when I play in different places, and I have played all over this country, and you get a different type of audience you get uh, in the Olympia a tremendous warmth uh, with an Olympia audience, you know, really with you. And it stays with you. And, and you, you, you go home of an evening and it's still there after a, a good show, after a good night, you know. 
a feeling, you know, after coming out of a shower, you're bristling, you know, you feel good. Well, that's the same feeling you get with the uh, after a good night with an Olympia audience. Yeah, lovely house. You could get your arms round them. Once you got that, the top gallery in, and they wanted a neck, they wouldn't let anything. I remember Jack Taylor going on that. He was a big singer at the time, although he wasn't really sang all the other songs. A lovely looking fella. And uh, at the end of the second house, they were playing the soldiers on now. They wouldn't let him go. He had to come out again after the soldiers on in front of the curtain and sing. They were great. They made you. It's the top shelf makes you. The proof of the pudding is in the seat. On Saturday night, it was a special night. Not the same as it is now. Go to discos and go to things. Saturday night was a real rough night then. Out, out in Dublin, you know, the, the lads. Came out to enjoy Saturday night and they enjoyed it. Oh, it was a different type. There were a different type of audience then. They liked the players. They liked drama. Because the things they looked at in those days, dramas, they wouldn't look at them now. During the late 40s, the artists flocked across the channel again to the Olympia. Turner and Leighton, Anne Shelton, Monty Ray, Charlie Coons, Ronnie Ronald, Arthur Askey, Evelyn Lay, a 16-year-old Shirley Bassey, a 12-year-old Julie Andrews, and in 1948, Donald Pears. Lavender blue, dilly dilly, lavender green. If I were king, dilly dilly, I'd need a queen. Who told me so, dilly dilly, who told me so? I told myself, dilly dilly, I told me so. If your dilly dilly heart feels a dilly dilly way, and if you'll answer yes, in the dilly dilly church on the dilly dilly day, you'll be wed in the dilly dilly dress of lavender blue. But when actor-managers Stanley Ilsley and Leo McCabe took over the theatre in 1951, they, like Sheila Richards before them, wanted the theatre to be a home for legitimate drama, just as much as for reviews and musicals. When we took actually over the Olympia Theatre, it was non-stop, what they called non-stop variety. Uh, it was, it was well, unfortunately... Uh, a policy which grew up in the Olympia, uh, this non-stop uh, variety, that they would open the doors at six o'clock, there'd be no people there at that time, and they'd just drift through, and then eventually the house would fill up. I know that uh, Leo found it most disconcerting to have all those mirrors around the walls. They used to have mirrors in those days so that people on the side could uh, watch the, the, the troops' legs, you see, the chorus girls' legs on the sides of the walls <laughs> and everything and so on. Well, that was all covered and we tried our best to, uh, well, encourage the, the legitimate audience to uh, the Olympia, which was a lot of spade work. For me, it was, um, we realised when we'd been in there that it was really a theatre inside a bar, so to speak. It was the bar that brought the money in, 
and uh, it was um, hither and thither sit to the seats during the performance and variety and um, then of course most of the 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 people in the bar would come out when the uh, top variety turn arrived you know and then we had to um, kind of keep curtains across at the entrance of the bars and all that kind of thing and it seemed quite impossible uh, we have been accused of of um, of discouraging variety, but uh, I mean we weren't that foolish, and uh, we we brought over variety of uh, the highest standard possible at the time, and very expensive variety shows. At the beginning, and, be and then we gradually, and then finally we came. You see, you um, being legit actors ourselves, naturally it was it was that was what we liked, and that's what we wanted. Because we we felt here is a beautiful theatre, which has been allowed to degenerate. You know. Leo McCabe, he and Stanley Ilsley brought big names to the Olympia from outside Ireland. Beatrice Lilly, Tyrone Power, Cornelia Otis Skinner, Alec Guinness, Sybil Thorndike, Emlyn Williams, Alfred London Lynn Fontaine, John Gielgud and Gladys Cooper, who appeared in a new play by Noel Coward, Relative Values. The set and the furniture was to be flown from London for the first night, but on the opening Monday it hadn't arrived. The cast all arrived by plane, of course, and uh, were comfortably stayed in their hotels at the time. They came on the Sunday, and um, the plane was supposed to leave at 8 o'clock in the morning. They had, I remember, a little Australian um, stage manager who was absolutely, went absolutely haywire. He, he was fairly new at the game, and he just didn't know where he was. And he would ring up about every hour from London to say, it hasn't started, it hasn't started, well, we hope we'll go. This And this continued all day. So um, finally Stanley said to me, look, um, as you know, he said, I have a set vamped up for this, which he had very, very wisely. Now, what about you ringing Gladys Cooper at her hotel and ask her, what is she going to do? They had their costumes with them. They were, they were, well, they were, they were modern. It was relative values, an old cards play. And um, I got through to her on the phone, and she said, certainly, of course. Well, I said, you won't mind playing in this set. It'll be different. Not at all. Not we, we'll, we, we'll go on tonight. Well, we finally got news about <clears throat> 4 o'clock that it was going to arrive. And it arrived, finally... It, it arrived uh, at the Olympia Theatre, I'd say roughly two hours before our curtain time. The Aer Lingus people and the customs people had all absolutely worked tremendously. The, the customs had just got everything, no delay. And the Aer Lingus chaps, who are not used to handling this type of cargo, you know. Actually, we have photographs of the whole thing, you know, but it was quite historic. And... Um, Erlingus actually presented us with the model of a plane which used to be in the bar and uh, Noel Card in later visits of his, Noel um, unveiled it for us, you know. But it's... Uh, How soon before curtain up did you... It got, up at a, it got up a few, about quarter past eight. The entire London set. There weren't only plays at the Olympia during the 50s, but also the first visits of dancers from Spain, France, Japan and Africa, and even an appearance by Laurel and Hardy. 
1963, the Olympia was sold again, this time to a London syndicate. But the following year, a group of Dublin theatre people took over, headed by Brendan Smith, the director of the Dublin Theatre Festival. I then organised, if you like, a board of our own. Uh, I enlisted Jack Cruz, who was very interested with me initially, and Lorcan Burke and Richard Hanlon came on the board also. Uh, we entered into a short-term lease with the consortium. Uh, we were, uh, we also, uh, I found that when they had purchased this place, they had bought the walls and the, their, any interest they could in the ground rents, but uh, they weren't interested in the equipment or anything inside the building at all. So we raised um, a loan to Board Fulcher and the Dublin Theatre Festival, which incidentally we repaid within 18 months of our opening here. And we purchased everything inside, so that we all the time have been the owners. In November 1974, it looked as though the musical West Side Story was going to be one of the most ambitious shows staged at the Olympia. But just before the show opened, the ceiling collapsed, and the Olympia was to remain dark for more than two years. We then started on, well, I won't say, because if I use the word campaign with the corporation, it sounds as if... Uh, we, we did have a long period of difficulty with... Uh, I, I'll start by saying a long period of difficulty with the city manager, Mr Mackin, at the time, and with certain body of the councillors in persuading them that it was worthwhile having a theatre, irrespective of who the tenants were or who the owners were. It was a matter of a theatre for Dublin City. I've harped on this again and again. We have happened to be the people in the breach at the moment. We did save the theatre in 64 because I would like it to be known that nobody made any effort to save it in 64 until we stepped in. And uh, But the position now in 74 was that a theatre was temporarily lost to the city and, incidentally, the largest remaining theatre in Ireland. So, um, to cut a very long story short, we had a year, over a year, of battling in the corporation with, at council level and committee level. Uh, we also had to mount our own uh, rest... Uh, we had to create an Olympia Theatre Restoration Trust Fund. Uh, we had to organise functions and... Um, marches and whatnot, etc., which captured a, a marvellous degree of public uh, um, support. support and cooperation, you know. And uh, eventually then, um, uh, Mr. Mackin, you know, when he saw the efforts we were making and what we planned to do, etc., etc., I must say, give him his due, uh, he came in heavily on our side. Noel Coward once called the Olympia this wonderful Baroque theatre, and now that it's restored to its old glory, what does the future hold for it? I think you could say that we will fulfil our function uh, as a um, an independent theatre. I, I, this word commercial theatre, as applied to the Gaiety and the Olympia, you know, is very out of date. Uh, it's independent in the sense that it's unsubsidised. So a new era begins for the famous theatre in Dame Street. The stained-glass portico still proclaims the Empire Palace, and perhaps the spirit of Dan Lowry still lingers there.
Should just want to castles, I hope you'll not forget. Poor Pat of Mullingarsers and his darling little pet. She's as gentle as the dove, sirs, her speed you can't deny. There's no blind side about her, though she owns. 